Hi, Ed here. Just want to let you know I'm still around. I know I didn't make it to uh, the last episode, and I'm actually not on this episode either, other than this brief introduction. So I'm back from Germany. I am frantically getting my garage shop ready for the imminent arrival of the Neo. I should be back on the next episode, so hopefully uh, I'm trying to get back into the uh, regular DFX recording schedule. But we have a special guest on this week's episode, Luke Bonathan from Carbide3D, better known as Mr. Beaver. Luke flew over from the UK to visit Carbide3D West. Winston and Chris caught up with him in Los Angeles this weekend and recorded this episode in the field. So the audio is a little rough, but I think you'll really enjoy it. I'll let Winston and Chris take it from here. See you next time. Welcome to episode 33 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris Lee. Eddie turned down our invitation to join us in Los Angeles for this interview, but nonetheless, we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Chris, how are you doing on this fine morning? Doing cool. We're out here in Redondo Beach, uh, hanging out with uh, who you're about to introduce right now. Yeah, we have our third chair pulled up, and here we have Mr. Luke from the UK. Yes. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thanks. I'm doing good. Loving the uh, sunshine, loving the heat. So you've been in the uh, US for about a week now. First of all, have you adjusted to the time zone changes, and have you adjusted to the culture shock? I think I'm on board with the time change as of Friday morning, uh, the culture shock. I'm not sure I'm ever going to get used to it. <laughs> it's a fun place to be. So, um, Chris, this is the first time you've met Luke. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Luke is our, at Carbide3D, our sort of a product development guru. And uh, I kind of want to start out with just figuring out how you got to where you are now. Because you didn't come from a manufacturing or like engineering background. So what did you do before you got here? Uh, so prior to Carbide 3D and um, Beaver CNC and all the rest, uh, I was actually working in finance uh, in England. I worked in um, uh, trading software. Small company, large company? Uh, very Some very big companies. Okay. And it was a totally different game. Uh, but it was one of those, you kind of find your passion as you go on through life. Mm-hmm. And I was checking in every day into work and it was it was fun. Every time I was coming home, that's what I was looking forward to. And slowly over time, that shift just changed. I spent more and more time in my shop, more and t- more time making stuff. And um, I had to make a jump. So what was your, like, what were some of your first creative interests that started pulling you away from the day job? Yeah, I suppose I, I, I started dabbling in motorcycles. So it's probably about four or five years ago, I bought, no, in fact, I bought a first motorcycle uh, in England, I think 2013, 2014 or so. And I had loads of these little ideas and things I wanted to do. I then moved to Australia for a little bit. And um, that, that sort of uh, peak and interest in trying to make stuff for this mo- these motorcycles was, uh, it was coming out. I kept on trying to make stuff without having any tools or any functionality uh, to do so. When I came back to England, I looked into doing it on a more grander scale. I bought myself a small hobbyist machine uh, and it was, it was really cool but it was very difficult to use. Uh, trying to do any kind of production runs was almost impossible. And that's when I kind of noticed the Carbide 3D and saw the Shapeoko 3. And I was like, I want that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
it literally sounds like your story is so similar to mine. That's exactly the reason why I got into this because I bought a motorcycle and I wanted to make stuff for it and kind of mm-hmm. brought into that. Um, you and I also came from a totally different background. So you came from finance and came from the medical field. Do you have the same fears as I had when you were making that jump into that new career? Because I, I'm constantly terrified of like, I left the nursing for this. Like, did I make the right choice? Do you kind of have that same kind of uh, internalized fears I do? Yeah, absolutely. But um, it was actually George said it to me. Uh, Fortune favors the bold. Hmm. And you kind of, once you've made that jump, you kind of just need to embrace it. Uh, and I think that really summarizes it for me. Uh, I love what I do now. I, I work longer than I should, but I enjoy every single waking moment of it. Hmm. Yeah, same here. Did you start out with, uh, did you have like garage space or like where were you working when you first started cobbling things together? Uh, I had a small flat in England. Uh, it wasn't in London, so we weren't all, you know, Cockneys. Or, mm-hmm. But uh, I had a small flat in England where I put most of my stuff and then I had a small garage behind it. Um, so I put my motorcycle in the garage um, and most of my tools fitted in there. But it always spilled out into my living room. Uh, my wife, my wife Hannah, was very patient with me. Still is. <laughs> it's better than me. I had my CNC in a living room, and then I added a second CNC. And then at some point, I realized I had to move to the garage, so I sold my motorcycle to make room. Wrong choice, man. <laughs> Wrong choice. Never ever. <laughs> my uh, my motorcycles and CNCs uh, battling for space at the moment. I've got. Uh, multiple CNCs in the garage mm-hmm. and I've also got mot- multiple motorcycles in the garage which is why my living room table uh, gets regularly refurbished every time I build a new CNC on it and uh, inevitably ruin it. <laughs> the next thing you got to do is uh, we actually brought in our motorcycles to the living room so that we could have more garage space for the CNCs so if yeah. your wife's on board for that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's where the uh, where the limit stands. <laughs> you don't have carpet flooring do you? Yep. Oh boy. Let's, let's yep. get out that uh, Dexter murder tarp and cover it down and roll it in. That's what we did. Man, it, it's just the aluminum chips that end up all through your house. Um, oh, yeah. The biggest problem is, like, if you don't trap them or collect them, like, right at the source, they get on the floor and then you track it on your shoes from the garage into the house. Mm-hmm. That's that's the hardest part about being a home machinist. There's only one thing I've ever found which gets everywhere more than aluminium mm-hmm. and it's if you ever do any spraying i don't know if you ever dabbled in that but i did a restoration project on a, a triumph bonneville a few years ago i sprayed it blue and even with the garage all locked up um i suppose dust collection or paint a paint collection everything it got paint everywhere i mean on top of the photo frames or on the top of the top of the house just run your finger along it and you see this real fine Pigment of blue. Overspray is the real, uh, real bitch. <laughs> oh yeah, it's nothing like that. Your wife must be extremely patient with you. <laughs> More than you could imagine. <laughs> I think you kind of have to when you have li- uh, CNCs in the living room, right? Uh, appreciative of my fiance for being just as uh, uh, supporting for all the stuff that I put her through. Did you meet her before you got into all these hobbies, or has she sort of? known this all of her time she's known you uh no i actually i met her uh years and years back in i think 2010 2011 and i said to her oh, i'm gonna buy a motorcycle uh just to you know try and impress her mm-hmm. turns out it works bought a motorcycle <laughs> then spiraled into this uh this life <laughs> she does something as well right i remember following along and she's got like a little shopper in the store as well yeah my um 
I mean, she's done a, a lot for Beaver CNC. Um, if you're anyone who purchased a uh, HDZ in the early days, I mean, she probably assembled it, packed it, shipped it, and you know, sealed it with a kiss. Um, but she still works a day job, and then at the same time, she runs a floristry business for wedding flowers in England, and that's been taken off years and years. Well, sorry, not years and years. It's been taken off the last couple of years, uh, and it's going real well. That's great. That's pretty cool. Can you talk a little about the sort of the early days of your CNC endeavor? Because I'm curious as to how the jump happened from someone who is working a day job into manufacturing your own CNC accessories. How does one gain the skills to do that? A trial and error, a lot of error. Um, I suppose it, it all really started. I was uh, I was trying to work on a magnetic motorcycle mount for my uh, bike at the time. I had all these ideas for like three or four years and I just wanted to make it. And Are we talking like a, a mount for like your phone or? Yeah, it's, when I lived in Australia, um, I bought a motorcycle and I wanted to get places, but I didn't know the country. I didn't know where I was going. I mean, I think they drove on the right side of the road. <laughs> uh, that's as far as it went. And I wanted to try and find a way I could put my phone on my dash, but without having a really stupid, complicated, ugly mount which wasn't very attractive in the grand scheme of things. So I, I dabbled in ways in which it could be done on a bike. And that was the starting point for me, I think, um, because no one had done anything like it at that, t- at that moment in time, which was acceptable to me. And I kind of shelved it uh, until I came back to the UK, had my garage, had my bike, um, and I ordered a belt, or I wanted to make a belt drive conversion kit for my bike. and. I ordered one, received it, and it came from some kind of, it was a dodgy manufacturer in the US who didn't ship me all the parts. And to be honest, this kit didn't seem very safe. For example, the um, uh, sprockets didn't have uh, belt guards. So at any point, your belt could just slip off. Hmm. I was like, that's not great. I don't want to come off a bike at 70 miles an hour. Great. So I then uh, bought this, I think it's a Clark CMD 10 mil. Uh, it's a manual mill, and it's not a, a great bit of kit, but it does the job. Mm. And I was making just the, the rings for it, um, just to make sure that the, the belt would stay on the sprockets, and it was going well. Once I'd done that, I turned my attention back to this motorcycle phone mount, and I downloaded something at the time, I think it was called Fusion 360. I tried loads of software, um, I can't even remember them all. Is it Google Sketch? SketchUp, oh, SketchUp, SketchUp, <laughs> and I was like, I could design something in it. I could design it relatively accurately, but I couldn't work out a way of getting into any kind of right, the right format to send it through to a machine shop. So I was like, why don't I just try and do it myself? So I actually ended up making some of these magnetic phone mounts on my Clark CMD10, but it, the process took ages. It was so slow. Um, it wasn't massively accurate, uh, although it weighed quite a bit, but it was a very old school manual machine. I was like, well, okay, why don't I try and send it out to manufacturers? And I got back these quotes from manufacturers, they were crazy money. I mean, I was just a guy who wanted to make some magnetic mounts. And I was getting quotes for two, three thousand pounds for a hundred, at which point, you, you know, it's yeah. too small a production run to be worthwhile, but I thought it was a great idea. Mm-hmm. And a couple of, maybe it was a year before, I'd seen the Kickstarter for Shape Oko 3, and I was like, I'd love one of those. And at the same time, um, luck would have it, uh, one came up on eBay, 
uh, in America uh, just before uh, you guys had some big storms. And I said, I want to buy your machine, send it to me. And the guy was like, nah. Back and forth, back and forth. I got him to send it to me. I paid him um, pretty much over the retail price, but it was still less than trying to pay for all the import, mm-hmm. etc. And I got it set up and I was hooked. Um, that to me was awesome. Within, I think, two hours of having it in my house, I had it set up. Within three hours, I had it drawing. And then within four hours, I was taking uh, taking it to material, which was really fun. That's a pretty fast learning curve. It's my head works in a very strange way sometimes, but when it comes to um, making things, it's always been I kind of roughly know what I'm doing. Roughly, did any of your background from your old job help you at all? Like maybe on the software side or anything, or no. it's just no. The I suppose that came into it later on when we would start talking about commercial acumen, um, because later on I had to bring products to market. And that's kind of uh, where the financial uh, services background really helped out. So once I had my Shape Oco and I had it set up, I then put it in the garage and all the rest, built my enclosure, put LED lights on it, messed around with limit switches for um, probably the best part of a year. And I was just sort of gaining knowledge and learning. Um, now, I, I could, during this time, I made loads of other things. I made loads of woodworking stuff or carpentry stuff. I made chopping boards. I made um, magnetic um, sunglasses holders, all kinds of cool things. But I really wanted to make uh, the magnetic mounts on them. So I started looking into how to make those. And I actually began a uh, production run on my Shapeoko for the magnetic mounts, which was awesome. I then became, uh, began selling them on eBay and offloading them. And to be honest, I only really need to make one really well for myself. Mm-hmm. And after that, I was done. Yeah. But it was a, it was a lot of fun. Um, the thing that held me back and where the I suppose where Beaver CNC and the HDZ came from is over here everything's imperial and I mean it's a great English system um, from back in the day. But the French came up with something better. Never thought I'd say that. <laughs> and in the UK, a lot of machining's done in metric, and as such, you couldn't get metric or I couldn't get imperial bits in the quantities I needed to make anything useful and if it one broke I'd be waiting three four weeks from one from America or I'd have to try and dabble in Chinese supply and I wasn't really that keen on it so I wanted to fit a larger spindle to my machine and that was where the HDZ was born um, I, I was going to import one from someone but it was just too too costly and the quality wasn't there and I said well if I'm going to do this I'll do it once, do it right. And one Christmas, I bought a load of aluminium. I sat up my Shapeoko. I bought some linear slides, some um, other original round bearings, the 16 mil ones. Mm-hmm. And I set about designing a um, the version one of HDZ. And it was great. It was, allowed me to mount a 80 millimeter uh, water-cooled spindle onto a Shapeoko. And from that moment, I could use any size bit I wanted. I could use a one mil bit, I could use a 10 mil bit, I could use a 20, 30 mil surfacing bit with a 10, 10 mil shank, and it was just a game changer. Uh, at that point, I said, cool, here's some designs community. And I gave just gave away the designs in the community and said, if anyone wants to make one, there they are, free. Don't want anything for them. And no one made one. 
Uh, <laughs> I, I remember when you posted that because I remember you posting on the car 3D forums when you were doing the thing. But yeah, I don't. I don't think anyone tried to attempt that. No, it, and uh, it was. I mean, version one was an all right design. It was functional and it competed with the only other supplier of linear sliders in the market at that moment in time. Uh, but I kind of got this bug for Fusion 360 and designing things. I wanted to make it better, better, better. And then it just spiraled. So version, there was version 1, 1.1, you know, you can envision at least 30 revisions of that. And then version 2 came out and it was slightly better again. It used linear rails, um, uh, the square variety. And again, they gave it away to the community and said, here you go, make one. And um, no one made one until... There's a chap called Griff on the community. I've heard of him. I try and stay away from the community generally. Mm. So um, he, yeah. I believe he's predominantly a woodworker. Um, he wanted to try making something out of aluminium and said, I would like to make HDZ. Can we have a little talk? So we, we chatted through, gave him, again, designs for free. And um, he made it. And um, at which point a lot of people said, oh, could you make me one? And I was like, mm, can, but I don't want to. <laughs> um I wasn't really, I was, you know, I was happy in a day job, loosely speaking. Uh, any of the messages kept on coming, so I said, right, I'll do 20. And I think the original production run was 10. And um, they, I think they sold in a couple of days. I was like, okay, cool. Um, and then when those are sold, uh, when they actually uh, started being manufactured, I, I saved one bit back. I didn't tell anyone I was going to make them uh, better than I or even in the design. So I was on version 2.5 or 2.6 by this point, or possibly it was an early version of 3.0. So I just kept on making the better and the things like the blue anodizing, it was all held back. There, mm. No one knew it was gonna be blue and anodized. And then it just blew up. Um, people just kept on messaging me. We set up a website, uh, pre-orders were coming in faster than we could you know, even think about delivering them. So we had to ramp up our production capabilities, at which point I was very fortunate to know a production shop in my local town. And we managed to get um, a large order of them made up. And then we worked on the next order, and then the next order, then the next order. And it just kept on kept on going. Um, not one point did we stop. We never um, allowed ourselves to sell out, but they just kept on selling. So we kept on making them. Hmm. And that then, said, well, we can ver- next we can start versioning it. So there's the 3.0, then there's the 3.01, um, 3.02, and we kept on making tiny little revisions to it. At the same time, because we'd started to develop um, a good relationship with the company we're using uh, for manufacturing, we said, what else can we improve? And I think the second thing was the eccentric nuts. Um, originally, we had to order them in from China, and they were the same as used on the um, standard Shapeoko Free. But they weren't; they didn't lend themselves to this glorious blue aluminium monster, and they marred the surface, and they just weren't ideal. We said we need to get some proper nuts machined, uh, so I revised those designs, and it, everything just sparked from one one design to another. It just kept on changing and we kept on changing tweaking till we found the right mix um, but the idea was we wanted to have as much a complete kit as possible which was easy to assemble put on your machine as quickly as possible um, so I mean we even went down the level of 
looking at how many screws were used in the assembly and seeing where we can cut them down. And prime examples are where you have the aluminium standoffs mm-hmm. and being able to use a standard or an aluminium standoff and use not off the shelf. So have something custom made, which will do the purpose, but reduce the number of screws or make it easier to assemble. Um, and that's you know what kept on happening. Lots and lots of little changes. Um, the biggest change we've made to the HDZ was the version 3.3, where you've got that integrated motor mount. But that revision was planned uh, almost, what were we in, October, almost a year ago. But you have to manage your supply chain to do it. Um, now, with the HDZ selling, we looked at alternative accessories. Um, bear in mind, I'm doing this all in my spare time whilst having a day job. But my evenings were filled with um, looking at manufacturing, uh, looking at ways in which things can be made. So we looked at all the accessories that should go with that. Um, we considered doing things like dust boots, but there really wasn't that much appeal from my side, as it meant going down a route of injection molding. Uh, we looked at limit switches, offered limit switch kit. Um, we looked at the any part which could be improved, such as the spindle mounts themselves. Can we make those ourselves? Um, it's just a strive for constant improvement. And whilst this is all happening, I also built a number of different CNCs myself and I ran small production orders. So I did something called the Beaver Pro, Mm -hmm. which was loosely based around a machine I actually built and designed on the Shapoko. So you were making CNCs with a CNC? Oh, yes. (laughs) Once you make, um, once you have a CNC, you just build them bigger, (laughs) just scaling up. So I, I used my Shapeoko uh, one holiday season to make a, um, a ball screw driven CNC. Um, and it was a, a very good machine, but it had its letdowns, uh, at which point I went into full production and it was anodized black and it was a very, very good machine. But I hadn't applied the right logic to it. I built the machine for me, mm-hmm. not for other people. And when you can, if you can design and build a CNC, putting it together is really easy. But it wasn't it wasn't an easy thing for most, um, and as such, we then developed the HD Zero kit, which was a ball screw driven machine, uh, and designed to be a lot easier to assemble and build. Um, and we sold those pretty quickly as well. <laughs> um, again, it was a simplified design. It was easy to service, easy to maintenance. Your HDZ would bolt straight on. So if you had bought a HDZ from us you didn't have a, such a higher cost of adoption if that's what you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried to stay away from like directly marketing. We didn't really want to uh, go after anyone's particular market. We just thought, hey, this is cool. Let's see what happens. Um, and that, that's really where the HD Zero stopped and when I started working for Carbide 3D. How big were these machines that you were making beforehand? Because I'm assuming you were also constrained by space. These couldn't be too much larger than the Shapeoko. Um, they could go up to one and a half meters by one and a half meters of which there's, it was actually the preferred size. Um, I had a small 60 by 60, um, that's centimeters. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a, yeah, it's about <laughs> that. It's almost two foot. <laughs> yeah. And it was a, a great little machine. It was a, um, almost, I say almost a, it was a, 
I wouldn't want to say it's a high high speed machining centre, but it was very fast. Um, Rob likes to call it the Beast of Britain, <laughs> which uh, I'm a fan. Um, but but it you know it was built around 1610 ball screws, linear sliders, high power motors, and it was fast, functional, and accurate. Um, the thing is, it was a DIY kit. Again, there was no logic to set to buying in motors from China storing them in the UK and then shipping them out to customers. We said, well, you can buy it all direct. And we use that model. So you buy the frame kit, the core components from us, mm-hmm. but then you could build it yourself. And it seemed quite popular. Uh, the only thing is you really have to narrow down and lay out the supply chain, which can be difficult if you're importing anything from a foreign country because uh, you never know what the customer is going to end up getting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that was probably where the weakness was. Because we couldn't control the supply chain enough, there were issues and people uh, receiving the wrong ball screws. So we'd have to be on the phone to China saying, look, why didn't you send the right ball screws? Then we have to make it right. Hmm. Um, but that said, there's uh, I think there's le- just less than 100 of those machines out there in the wild. And uh, every single one uh, is, I think as far as I know, is up and running and working very well. The saddest thing was when I had to sell my own machine because I ran out of space. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to ship out my little 6060 machine and I think it went to um, uh, Japan but they, they were great little machines and I mean the testament was we've got one in a I think it's one in a Lamborghini garage in LA or somewhere in California we've got them used in a couple of educational serv- uh, universities mm-hmm. uh, as well as being used in a couple of schools in the UK but it was really off the back of I just want to make sure there's an upgrade path um, rather than have a you know, a machine in which people say, oh, I've got the HDZ and now I'm making things on a production level. I want to buy a new machine. I didn't, I actually didn't really want them to move away from carbide 3D in some ways. And with all the stuff we would say, you know, don't buy it. Like don't buy a HDZ if you, um, if you don't need one. Um, it's not going to make anything any better unless you're pumping out designs left, right and center. How difficult was the customer service part of like? Because I'm imagining you selling a DIY CNC kit. There's a range of skill levels, right? And I'm just imagining the worst nightmares of <laughs> tech service on emails and stuff. And you trying to like navigate that kind of minefield. Was it pretty bad or was it? It was really. It was terrible. It was terrible. Right? Um, so I'm. Uh, I would like to say the customers uh, were always always right and were very supportive. Um, they kind of knew what they were getting in bed with. Uh, but I was regularly answering emails at 4 a.m. UK time. Um, I operated on between four and five hours sleep most days, uh, trying to do a day job as well. It was it was difficult. Um, but again, it was fueled by this passion to bring something to, um, I suppose, you know, the maker space or entry level machining space, which hadn't really been done before uh, on that kind of scale. What was your controller like for your CNCs? Were you using Gerbil or uh, Linux CNC, or like what were you using for control? Uh, for myself, I use Gerbil, but mm-hmm. we said that you know if you wanted to use Linux CNC, you could use Linux CNC. We've got people running off Maso CNC controllers. Uh, a number of people use the CNC X Pro. Um, it it really depended on the build. That was the one thing again you have freedom of choice. Mm-hmm. If you want to do it with GURP, or you can do We've got one guy put an ATC on it. Um, that's great. You know, it was really cool to see, but it's not for the everyday. Yeah. And I think he actually used a 
his own variation of Gerbil to do it, along with a load of breakout boards. But if you said mass appeal, it's not got mass appeal because it, that in itself, you know, an ATC spindle, a decent one, is the best part of two thousand um, yeah. dollars, and that's a cheap entry level one. If you go um, some of the better ones, they're three thousand plus, and then you've got all the supply. Uh, around it, so you need air supply, you need filters, you need pneumatics, and you need additional controllers. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not, and it's a shame because it's a really cool. Um, it's a really cool feature to have an ATC, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, you know, it, for the majority, it's unnecessary, and you know, for most makers, it's unachievable because it's a, you know, a four thousand dollar upgrade straight away on top of a machine. If only we had two guys working at Carbide to be able to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that. ATC has always been kind of like the hobby dream, right? To be able to walk away and come back That's, and finish part. It's kind of like the one feature that all of the the nerds in the forums are like, the ultimate goal is to like have an, like an ATC because that's going to make everything so much better. Blah, blah, blah. Like <laughs> the end, all, like, I don't know, like rigidity, great, um, like speed whatever cutting force whatever better route or whatever but people like that's sort of the the level the what separates the the boys from the men kind of in the cnc world uh, i'd absolutely agree um i'd love to see a an atc through carbide 3d um but it's it's just not one of those it's not for the masses mm-hmm. and i think if you had people just walking away from the machines i wouldn't like to see what that looks like <laughs> It would take a lot. (laughs) That'd be pretty scary. Yeah, the the problem is the experience level of the user base is so broad that even with like the HDZ, it's difficult to to tell a person who maybe they're only doing woodworking Mm -hmm. and they really want one, they're keen on it, but do you really need one? Mm -hmm. And then furthermore, are you going to have the experience to be able to push it to make the most of it? And the answer is probably no. Yeah, Um, absolutely. in it, well, we've always told people not to buy them um, because unless you're doing production runs or you're you know really into it as a hobby, it's a very cool upgrade. Mm-hmm. I mean that, that glorious blue, um, but at the same time, it, the Shapeoko is standard. It's an incredibly capable machine, um, and you know for seventeen hundred bucks, you can get a fantastic machine shipped to your door, and you can make stuff. Um, and I think that's phenomenal. As soon as you start adding things like the HDZ, it makes it you know significantly more expensive, and it's not always needed. Mm-hmm. Um, you could get away with just using a, a dialing in your machine uh, correctly, setting up, and spending the time to uh, calibrate it. And then for the majority of jobs, you know, wood, metal, aluminium, it will do it. I mean, I I, um, I built a full-on CNC machine on a standard Shapeoko using a half-inch thick aluminium. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying it was fast, and there were parts which you know, weren't quite to the tolerances I would have liked, but that's incredible. And that was a standard Shapeoko 3, which cost, a, I think at the time, $1,100 plus uh, a few hundred dollars shipping fees. Pretty much, yeah. You know, I, I put in my video, like, there's nothing you can't do with stock 3 that the HTZ will enable you to do. The only difference is speed, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the um, it, the the standard machine is just so capable of so much. Uh, I don't think a lot of people realise that, um, but it you know it does take the time to dial it in um, because that's what the HDZ sort of implemented. It was, it was fail safe. Um, you'd never lose stock height. 
Um, mm. you, it, almost impossible. The only time you do it is, um, so not stock high, um, uh, Z high is because you were pushing the machine too fast and you're actually stalling the motor. Um, early concepts, we put on some 420 ounce motors uh, using like 70, 80 volt supplies and you, you, you can tear apart HDZ if you overpowered it. Um, so the, the current motors are just perfect for it. It's pretty interesting to hear kind of like your background and the story where you came from. It's kind of like a prime example of like if you build it, they will come, right? Like you weren't, you didn't get into this to try to make a product. You just wanted to make something for yourself. And I feel like that's a really important key factor for anyone who's listening who may be on the fence about doing something like this. It's like, don't try to make something to sell. Just make something for yourself. And chances are if you do, there's going to be lots of other people who also want that thing if you make it good enough. And I think your idea of non-stop iteration and always improving. I wish a lot of other companies would adopt that same mythology because especially when I see bigger companies fail to do that, it's depressing because they have the financial backing, the capability, the, the staff, the support, everything to do it, and yet they don't make their product better. And every time you know the next year rolls around and they're giving their speeches or they're giving this thing and I see this thing they're rolling out, it's like, this is what you came up with? I bet you the three of us could come up with something better with very little fun. You know, like it's just so I, I'm glad to hear that. That's really, um, it's really cool. You know, yeah. and it's, uh, I, I feel like you and I are kind of, we went on that around the same period too. The time is, at least for me, that I got my bike around the same time. So we're like in different countries, we're kind of in the same weird little path here. Yeah. That's kind of neat. I think that's it. I mean, uh, there's certain things you can build and no one will want them. Um, but if you, you know, think it through and say, this is what we're going to do and try and actually make sure it's done in a, a good way it's repeatable and you consider the user experience that they have rent that's what's key you can make something yourself um, I mean the Beaver Pro made for myself we didn't sell lots of them um, because they're hard to put together but if you build something yourself and think actually mass appeal how can it work and how can it be assembled by someone else or how can it be used it's really considering what the, the end customer needs right. um, and then like I say constant uh, constant changes are great but you do have to control yourself sometimes <laughs> I mean it took me a, a year to put on my recessed um, uh, bearing block um, a motor block because it was such a big change to the product hmm. um, but again once you think it through work out your supply chain and how it's gonna gonna work it can work really well yeah um, but I'd say you know if you're considering buying a, a machine of any type you should just do it I can't count the amount of sleepless nights and uh, how much fun I've had since buying a Shapeoko. Um, I just think they're they're fantastic. Um, I think even my wife, you know, she reaps the benefits if she wants something made. Um, you know, if she ever wants a chopping board, just roll one out. <laughs> <laughs> Have you made a lot of things for the home? Yes, yeah, I've um, recently been doing uh, quite a bit of carpentry. Um, so I've been doing things like mirror frames, photo frames, uh, just did some recessed shelving. So now you, you've got floating shelves over here. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I wouldn't mind making myself some floating shelves at oak and I don't want to see the brackets. And when you apply that to a project, you can get quite quite technical into some loads mm. uh, and force on it. But we've got these lovely floating oak shelves, which each one weighs, I don't know, 20 kilos and supports a significant amount of gin. <laughs> Pretty good use case. Yeah, uh, just uh, two weeks ago, made my friends who just bought a new house or bought a house 
a house sign. Mm-hmm. Um, if if anything breaks in the house, it gets fixed. And usually the answer is, I throw it on my CNC. <laughs> so what, moving forward, like, uh, are, are you planning to, are you living out here in LA? Are you going to move out here for good? Or are you going to be working over there and kind of back and forth? I think initially um, I'll be working in the UK and commuting as and when it was needed. Um, we're quite fortunate we've got a couple of offices at Carbide 3D um, and I've got a full product development set up, set, set up in my um, in my home shop uh, and as such it allows me to do my job fairly well. The only thing is the uh, time change can, or time difference can be a little bit challenging. Mm. I'm getting messages from uh, the team at 11 o'clock at night and it's just lunchtime. I've seen that. Um, I messaged you and I, I, I looked down on my watch and I, I feel guilty because I'm like, he's probably having dinner right now or something. No, chances are I'll, I'll still be uh, replying or t- I'll come back to you anyway. Um, I don't like sleep that much. <laughs> so what are you most excited for now that you're kind of part of the Carbide team? Like, what do you want to get into Like, now that you have some backing and some support? Yeah, I, I suppose it's the... Ability to have a, a much more scalable company behind me. Um, I mean, we've got our own support team. We've got um, resources, machines to uh, really focus on product development. Uh, I, I've got I mean, it's five or six projects which I'm really, really excited about. Can't talk about here, mm-hmm. um, but ones which you can only do if you are a significant. Um, I suppose you have significant machine shop capabilities, which as far as I know, not many people have. Mm-hmm. Um, but really for me, it's doing everything the car by 3D way. Mm-hmm. It's not hacking together, a, um, hacking together a load of components. It's doing it the right way, which allows people to make what they want to make in a quick, affordable manner. And also have long-term support. Long-term support as well. Um, I mean, in all honesty, if you look at Beaver CNC and you look how many emails we had over the course of six months, mm-hmm. it's not sustainable going forwards. Um, prior to me joining Carbide 3D, we were about to expand. Uh, we were just about to sign a lease on a, a shop, a proper shop. Mm-hmm. We had multiple vendors coming to us to sell us CNC machines uh, because we were going to move more and more production in-house. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, that would have come with staffing costs and Quite honestly, it was a lot of capital that was going to have to come out of um, come out of the air to support that. Um, and we have seen a number of uh, small shops similar to you know Beaver CNC pop up, and you do question you know, how are they going to support their users going forwards. It's not often a it's not often a company can support that. I don't think it yeah. takes a special kind of company to. Did you have any issues? Because I know you had different revisions of your accessories going out. Were you tracking like, oh, this person has like version like 2.0, 2.1? Like, yeah. So on every single order that went out, we had to work out what revision of say limit switches they had because they had different versions of plugs, and it was one of those where <laughs> <laughs> this this does not sound fun. <laughs> no, it re- it was only two revisions of the of the plug, but depending on the type of controller they were using. Mm-hmm. And uh, depending on the, the setup of their machine, they could have used one of one or two versions. But the thing is, we weren't big enough to take uh, advantage of putting connectors on, for example. Mm-hmm. So I ha- had to hire um, just a temporary person just to literally stick on connectors, onto probes, onto limit switches, etc. And then we found a better way of doing it. 
And as soon as you find that better way of doing it, you're like, I don't, I don't really care about the ones which have gone out in the sense of, uh, we'd like to upgrade them. Mm-hmm. But if, you know, if there was a problem, we'd just have to send a whole replacement set and say, look, this is a new design. Um, it, ne- it wasn't necessarily the best way of doing it. But again, it's, you, you live and learn. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't count the amount of lessons I've had since, um, starting this hobby <laughs> business. Uh, journey. <laughs> it's it's one thing to just make something for yourself, but it's this whole other thing when you need to make it for other people because mm-hmm. a lot of things that you don't people don't tell you like it. it sure, make it, but what comes after that is well, product research, marketing. Mm-hmm. How do you get this to people? You have to support these people yep. uh, for for many many months or years after that, mm-hmm. um, and just being able to have that presence and trust of the public, you know, it's very important to maintain that. So yeah. a lot of this stuff uh, you kind of don't know until you're in it, right? Yeah, kind of deep into it. It's very true. Um, I mean, we're very fortunate that the, the, the main product we sell, the HDZ or HDZ. Um, <laughs> Yeah, culture. <laughs> uh, they're almost bulletproof. Um, but, you know, if one goes wrong, we stand by it um, even today. Um, if someone has a faulty limit switch on a rare occurrence, occurrence, we will send them, I will personally send them a new limit switch. Um, you know, they are supported for the lifetime because they chose to back me uh, doing my project. So I will make sure their shop is up and running um, where I can. I think all of this also kind of just when I first joined Carbide, I hadn't seen the internal workings of the company. So from the outside, I was just like, oh, why don't they, they do this or that? Or why don't they make these changes? But there's a lot that goes into making sure you get it right the first time. Absolutely. And, you know, I'd say that we as Carbide 3D are very conservative of what we do to make sure that we're not shipping out loads of different limit switches with different connectors on. Um, because quite honestly, it's a, it's a bad customer experience. Um, we want to make sure that as a product goes to market um, or as you choose to buy an accessory or a machine from us, we're getting it right. And that's why we, you know, we are so hot on support. Um, if there's been a problem, we want to sort it out and make sure that you can continue to make stuff. Um, you know, that's really what we're about. Yeah. It just means that we sort of have to take our time and make sure we, we have everything in line first. We, we sure do. I uh, said six projects. <laughs> I would yell at you to, to make more stuff, but I already know how backlogged you are. <laughs> but no, that's that's good. I'm I'm really optimistic about sort of the company's future now that you're on board because I've said publicly that you've doubled the pace of innovation, but I think it's closer to tripling. Um, you, you've really lit a fire under everyone's uh, rears to, to just push forward and, and improve. And the market forces sort of have some say in that too, but um, like... 2020 is going to be a good year for carbide. Oh yeah, I'm I'm very confident of that. Yeah, um, I'll also take that little sound clip and give it to Rob on Monday. <laughs> sounds, good. sounds good. I'm going to edit that before you hear it to say twice as good and just leave it at that. Yeah, no, it's it, the, the outlook of carbide 3D. I mean, obviously, I now work for. I, I am carbide 3D. Um, I should be optimistic, but I'm just so excited. Um, about the projects I'm working on. Uh, it's just no one else has been able to do some of the things we're looking at doing. And that's really exciting to be able to deliver those and put them on people's homes and shops. It's just so cool. It's like my, <laughs> I don't know, it's just I incredible. Know. I am, I'm excited to get my hands on these too. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm just watching from the sidelines and being like, yep, I'll take one of those and <laughs> I'll have that too. That's it. So I'll take out your salary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, do you have anything else, Chris? No, I'm, I'm just excited for the future for you guys. You know, if I wasn't in my pad, I'd probably be at your doorstep asking Rob for a job <laughs> as well. But I'm um, excited to see what you guys bring out. And I'm sure all the Shipogo and people out there are also just as excited to see what you guys bring. So looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, Luke, looking for forward to us. beta no, testing all that stuff as well. So, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me on, guys. I um, really appreciate it. And um, hopefully I've said something either interesting or insightful, which people might take away and say, let's give it a go.